Today's scripture reading is in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers bend together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the world of the earth, your possession. You will break them with rod of iron. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the world. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rules with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think our passage, or rather passages today, you'll find are particularly appropriate for a week uh, when we've marked a year since the insurrection at the Capitol building in the United States. Uh, will you pray with me? In the words of the Acts of the Apostles, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Granted to your servants to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and move in power through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. I wonder if you saw over the holidays a report on the Pope's Christmas Day message. Not always something that Baptists look for, I know. But in his speech, Pope Francis warned that the world is becoming so desensitized to crises and suffering that they're now happening while hardly being noticed. He said that as a consequence of the pandemic, nations are avoiding dialogue and taking shortcuts rather than setting out on the longer path to resolve conflicts. We continue to witness a growing number of conflicts, crises, and disagreements, he said. These never seem to end, and by now we hardly even notice them. We've become so used to them that immense tragedies are being passed over in silence. He singled out Syria, uh, Iraq, and Yemen, where he said an enormous tragedy overlooked by everyone has silently gone on for years. He urged people to keep in mind continuing tensions between Israel and the Palestinians and the unprecedented economic and social crisis that's gripping Lebanon. 
Turning to Asia, he prayed for God to comfort the people of Afghanistan, who for more than 40 years have been tested by conflicts, and for God to sustain the people of Myanmar, where intolerance and violence frequently targets the Christian community. He also prayed for peace to come to conflicts in other trouble spots around the world, including Ukraine, Ethiopia, and the Sahel, which has been a front line in the war against Islamic militancy for almost a decade. Whether we're Catholic or not, the Pope raises some deeply troubling and profoundly important issues. How are we, as Christians, supposed to understand and respond to all of the turmoil going on in the world today? At least 82.4 million people around the world have been forced to flee their homes. That is to say, one in every 95 people living on earth today has fled their home as a result of conflict or persecution. There's also, of course, countless millions of stateless people, people who've been denied a nationality and who lack, as a result of that, not only a place to call home, but access to basic human rights like education, healthcare, employment. And around half of the world's refugees are under the age of 18. Just this week, we've seen protests about fuel price rises escalate into massive anti-government protests in Kazakhstan. More than 160 people have been killed. 6,000 protesters have been arrested in riots across the country. There's been a state of emergency declared and a, a national curfew in place, and Russian troops have crossed the border. And this is, of course, just the latest in a seemingly never-ending series of similar national and international crises. Does the Bible have anything to say to us about all the conflicts going on between nations, all the civil wars, all the terrorism? How is it that there are more Christians in the world today than at any other time in history before? But the state of the world seems to be worse than ever before. What are followers of Jesus supposed to do in response to all of the chaos that seems to be spreading through the nations in our day. We're studying the book of Acts as a church, and we've come to the latter part of chapter four this afternoon. So if you have a Bible with you, you can be turning to the end of Acts chapter four. I'm gonna read from verse 23 onwards. But before I do that, let me just remind you of where we're at in the narrative. Luke has taken two whole chapters of the book of Acts to tell us about the healing of a lame man at the temple gate. He picks this one story out of hundreds, in fact thousands of conversion stories that he could have chosen. Luke packs a lot into this uh, healing account. There's the healing itself, its effect on the crowd, Peter's message in the temple, his arrest and appearance before the chief priests and teachers of the law. But Luke isn't finished yet. He has one more piece to add to this story. 
When Peter and John are freed by the temple leaders, they return to join the other believers and they hold a prayer meeting. Now, if it was us having a prayer meeting under those circumstances, if our leaders had been arrested, imprisoned, questioned by hostile authorities, what would we pray? I think we would thank God for their safe deliverance. Perhaps we'd thank God for their boldness and pray for a greater boldness in standing up to those authorities. I think we would definitely pray for protection for them and for us. But the prayer that Luke records here in Acts chapter 4 doesn't include any of that. In fact, at least the very first part of that prayer seems to be completely off the point. And yet the last verse will show us that their prayer was exactly what it should have been. So Acts chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Uh, sorry, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. As you read the early chapters of the book of Acts and look at the Apostle Peter, you clearly see one aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, boldness. You see that remarkable contrast between Peter in the courtyard the night that Jesus was arrested, denying that he even knew Jesus three times, and Peter full of the Holy Spirit standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council, boldly declaring that they had put the author of life to death. Boldness, courage to speak the truth, well, that's certainly a deeply significant work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus. But it's not the only transformation that the Spirit brings about. When Peter tells the teachers of the law that the, the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he's not just demonstrating boldness. He's also revealing extraordinary understanding. He's reinterpreting that passage of Scripture for them, and it's Peter's remarkable understanding, not just his courage, that shows the, the members of the Sanhedrin 
something that stuns them. Luke says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, that is, not trained rabbis, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, it wasn't just boldness they were given. It was understanding, the ability to interpret the Scriptures and the ability to interpret the world around them through the Scriptures. And that's what we see them doing as they gather together for prayer. They pray words from the Hebrew Scriptures, and by, uh, by doing so, they demonstrate that they understand that the events that are going on in the world around them are to be understood in light of God's Word. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit for believers to understand the word of God. Without the Holy Spirit, we, we couldn't interpret the Scriptures rightly. And without prayer and a right understanding of the Scriptures, we cannot really interpret what's going on in the world. You see it after every terrorist attack or every major international incident. Commentators on television or in the press desperately trying to explain how we should respond to the, the mess of international relations, conflicting ideologies, terrorism, and war. Most of them cannot do it, and they cannot do it because they do not look at events from a biblical worldview. They don't have the Word and the Spirit to equip them to understand times. Having the Bible, though, is not enough. Even having it explained well is not enough. It's not until the Holy Spirit is at work within us that the text comes alive and becomes our guide to understand the events that are going on in the world around us. Just think about the apostles. They've spent the past three years listening to Jesus teach them the meaning of the Scriptures. How could they possibly have had better Bible teaching than from Jesus? the person that the whole Old Testament is pointing to. And yet they still don't understand the central message of Scripture. Even after the resurrection and those 40 days of teaching from the Scriptures that the risen Jesus gives them, they still don't understand. And that's where Luke begins the book of Acts with Jesus teaching them the, the central message of the Word of God. In Acts 1.3, Luke writes, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's the central message of the Bible, the kingdom of God. That's the promise of the Bible, the universal reign of God is coming. From the moment that his public ministry began, Jesus has been teaching that message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
In fact, from the moment that John the Baptist began preaching in the wilderness, that was his message. Repent, because the reign of God over all creation is at hand. But despite the fact that some of the apostles were John's disciples, were taught about the kingdom by him, and then spent three years being taught about the kingdom of God by Jesus, and then heard it again for another 40 days of encounters with the risen Jesus, despite all of that, they still haven't understood. So in the first chapter of Acts, they say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still think that the kingdom of God is Israel. They have this nationalistic view that God's purpose in history is to make their nation the center of the world. But Jesus' response to all of this is not to despair of them. Instead, it's to remind them again that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Then they'll have the power to understand. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, Jesus says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's when you'll understand. Remember what Jesus said to them at the Last Supper? The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. He will lead you into all truth. That's the mark of the Spirit in the life of the believer, not just giving believers boldness, but also to give understanding, to open our eyes to the meaning of the Scriptures so that we can understand and respond to the world as it really is. And the key thing that we need to understand is the Bible's message about the kingdom of God. So before we go any further, let me state three things that the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. Three things that are going to help us to understand why the disciples pray what they pray in this Jerusalem prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. So three things that the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. Number one, all of history will culminate in the kingdom of God. Everything in all creation will find its consummation in the universal reign of God. All of history is leading up to the moment when the kingdom of God will be revealed in all of its fullness. Number two, Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that he is the King over all creation. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's not just the Christians. Every president, every prime minister, every member of parliament, Every general, every dictator, every tyrant, every Taliban, every terrorist, every Buddhist, every Muslim, every Hindu, every atheist, everyone, everyone will know that Jesus is king. All of history will culminate in the kingdom of God and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And number three, 
Jesus' kingdom is breaking into the world today. Usually it's in such small ways that we don't recognize it. And we often dismiss it. Think about Jesus' parables of the sower or of the mustard seed. At first it seems so small and so insignificant. But the coming of the kingdom is what history is all about. And Jesus said that from the moment John the Baptist began preaching it, the kingdom of God had been forcefully advancing. Uh, people are often uncomfortable with that verse because it literally reads the kingdom of God has been violently advancing. Sounds wrong, doesn't it? But of course, what Jesus is saying is that as the kingdom of God breaks into the world, all the other kingdoms rise up to reject it and resist it. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God inevitably precipitates a clash of kingdoms. No one can have two masters, Jesus says. And the more the kingdom of God advances, the more resistance it meets from all of those who don't want to submit to it, all those principalities and powers that stand to lose their place when God's reign is fully established. Now the disciples, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, know that this is what's going on. Because you can find it described again and again in the Old Testament, and Jesus has pointed this out to them. Perhaps the most famous vision of the clash of kingdoms is the dream that God gives to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It's recorded in the second chapter of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is described as king of kings. He's the ruler of the vast Babylonian empire with its center in the land that today we call Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar is given this vision of a great statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Then a stone not cut by human hands strikes this statue on its feet and smashes them. And the entire statue breaks into pieces and turns into dust. And it's blown away by the wind, leaving no trace. But the stone that strikes the statue becomes a mountain that grows and fills the whole earth. The prophet Daniel explains this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a vision given to him by God, says Daniel. The statue represents the great empires of the world. The golden head is Nebuchadnezzar's own Babylonian empire. This, Daniel says, will be succeeded by another empire, the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian empire which will itself be conquered by a third empire, the, the belly and thighs of bronze, the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And that in turn will be overrun by a fourth empire, the legs of iron, the Roman empire, an empire that will be divided, symbolized by the feet of iron and clay. And then Daniel says in verse 44 of Daniel chapter two, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. 
It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. That is what is happening in the ministry of Jesus. God is setting up this new kingdom. It's small at first, a stone compared to the size of this great statue, insignificant compared to the size of the kingdoms of the world. But that small thing arriving during the time of the Roman Empire brings down all the kingdoms of the world turning them to dust and growing itself until it fills the whole earth. The message that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar specifies four great ancient Near Eastern empires, but it also symbolizes the relationship of the kingdom of God to all human kingdoms. The coming of the kingdom of God has ultimate consequences for all the powers of the world. And the disciples praying together in Jerusalem with Peter and John understand this biblical vision of the clash of kingdoms. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, they finally understand what the kingdom of God is all about. And they're able to interpret what's going on in the world around them. They understand that as the kingdom of God advances, it's being met by violent resistance. Our brother, Darrell Johnson, says, the main reason for turmoil in the world is the progress of the hidden kingdom of Christ pressing in on the world's kingdoms. Let me say that again. The main reason for turmoil in the world is the progress of the hidden kingdom of Christ pressing in on the world's kingdoms. How do we know that's true? Because if all people accepted God's reign and lived in obedience to him, there would be no terrorism, no war, no strife between the nations, would there? And so the disciples begin their prayer Sovereign Lord, that is, King, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, everything is rightly yours to command. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They're quoting the first verses of Psalm 2. Those lines may be laid out as a quotation in your Bible. A Psalm 2 is a declaration of God's sovereignty over the nations. And when they quote those two verses, they have in mind, of course, the whole psalm. 
It was read for us uh, just a little earlier in the service, but let me read it to you again now in light of what we've said. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and you and your ways will be destroyed, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The disciples gathered to pray recognize that as God's kingdom breaks in, other kingdoms are going to come into conflict with it. And so they pray, verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod representing political power in Philistine, it's in Palestine, I'm sorry. Pontius Pilate representing the power of the Roman Empire. The Gentiles, that is the Roman forces, representing the military might of Rome and the people of Israel, all conspire together to resist Jesus, their coming king. This is the kings of the earth taking their stand, the rulers gathering together against the anointed one. This is the nations raging and the peoples plotting. But they're plotting in vain. So the disciples pray, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, the coming of the kingdom of God cannot be thwarted. God is sovereign, even over resistance to his rule. Herod and Pilate, uh, the Romans and the Jews, they can only do what God allows them to do. And this is true of all resistance to the kingdom of God. God is still sovereign, even over all of the turmoil that we see in our world today. And more than that, he can use even the resistance of the world to bring in the kingdom. Just think about all the times in history when the church has been oppressed and all the places where Christians have been persecuted and yet the church has grown exponentially under that pressure. In our own day, in the most turbulent part of the world, the Middle East, a miracle is happening. 
People who no missionary has been able to reach in decades are finding faith in Jesus. Muslims report coming to Christ as they encounter him in dreams. Refugees from the conflict in Syria coming into Lebanon are being housed and cared for in refugee camps set up by Lebanese Christians. And they're coming to faith in droves. See, as hard as it is for us to grasp when we hear about the atrocities in other parts of the world, God can use even an instrument of torture, a Roman cross, to do his loving, saving will on earth. So the disciples pray, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In light of this vision of the clash of kingdoms, the disciples don't pray for deliverance and safety. They know that that's not on the cards. Instead, they pray, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They invite God to make it worse. They ask for boldness to declare their message more widely and for more signs and wonders to demonstrate the inbreaking of God's reign. Why? Because they understand that the kingdom of God is coming. And as it advances, resistance will grow. There will be more and more turmoil in the world. The nations will rage until at last every knee will bow. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.